Well, good morning, Crossroads. This morning you have, uh, at, uh, today you're going to have two Turners speaking to you, brothers, or Turner and Hooch, you are a little older. We couldn't decide which one was going to be Hooch, so we'll both stay with Turner. You know, this is a first for me. We're, I was part of the came over from Crossroads and had the privilege of becoming one with, I mean, coming over from Cyprus and becoming one with Crossroads. Standing in front of others and teaching this way is a little unusual. So I'm, first of all, I'm grateful for the my opportunity to I also um, I'm not used to all this technology people punching and punching and I just hope they hit the right button and I don't thank <laughs> but I do take this responsibility seriously it is a I don't want to say it's a burden but it's a heaviness in in terms of responsibility to be entrusted with God's word and to share it with others and so my prayer this morning is that God would use me as his mouthpiece to speak only that which is true, cause all other words, thoughts, and actions to be discarded, and that you would receive it in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. We are continuing uh, looking at focusing on Jesus. We are in the last week of his life. Jesus is, Matt brought us up to date last week, he was Jesus journeyed from Bethage and Bethany into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so this is a day or two following Palm Sunday, may have happened uh, a Monday or a Tuesday. So let's look at the 20th chapter of Luke. I'm going to take the first eight verses, and then Joe will come and share the last part down through verse 18. So let's read verses 1 through 8. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple complex and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? I'm assuming part of that, these things, refers back to his clearing the temple, which had to be pretty dramatic. Who is it that gives you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. Was, John's, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves. Hmm, if we say from heaven, he will say, why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin, referring to Jesus' authority. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Cut off again. Back again. <laughs> I can't move from this spot. Okay. Um, Jesus, again, is fixed, his eyes fixed on the cross. He cannot be deterred from the events that have taken place. Tensions rise, as we saw in the last few verses in the 
chapter 19 that Matt uh, taught us from last week. The Pharisees, actually all the church leaders, not just the Pharisees, but all the religious leaders were actively looking for a way to do away with him, destroy him, basically just to wipe him out, kill him. And with that in mind and with his um, being aware of what faced him at the end of the week, the cross, his crucifixion, the pain and suffering that would accompany that, uh, Jesus continues on his mission. He will not be swayed. He will not, not be dis distracted. But we have to realize the heavy emotional burden that he is bearing during this time in knowing what's ahead of him in going through this process. So let's take a look at a couple of these verses, actually all of them. Verse 1 one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, so the setting, of course, Jesus has cleared the temple. It may have been earlier that day or it may have been the day before, but he finds himself back in the temple teaching. The temple, of course, is symbolic of God's presence, his authority. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And again, Jesus is not distracted by what, all that's going on. He, he just continues to go. And that... This is an example of Jesus' authority right here, just shown in his determination and his focus on what's, what's happening, and he, even though he knows what's going on. So the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Now, this is not just a couple of people who kind of uh, courteously interrupt him. Uh, this is, the, the tensions are high, and they're confronting Jesus. They're not coming and asking him politely about these things. They're challenging him. They're in his face. Who gave you this authority? What authority do you have to do this? Show us your permit. Show us your ordination papers. So these people, these religious people, and it was a group, a mob, if you want to call it that, who were confronting Jesus rudely, just viciously, actually. Uh, it had, had it not been for their concern for the people around them, their reaction, I'm sure they may have been willing to take him on right then and there, if that was possible. So we see it, and it's already in, in the previous chapter where they were already planning and trying to decide how they were going to get rid of him. So this action by Jesus, both the clearing of the temple and now he's, he's preaching and teaching in the temple, just raises their ire to a new level. So they confront him in, in fury. So verse 2, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? Um, what, this was Jesus' turf. I mean, the temple representing the presence of God and his authority and Jesus being God was in his element in terms of his, pre his, uh, his space of, of this temple because this is where the people went to seek God. And so that then was a huge threat to these religious leaders because they saw it as their turf and no one dare invade their turf with God things. Who has the authority, the audacity to come into this temple area talking about God, and specifically, I'm sure in his, the message of Jesus, of the kingdom of God, had to do with their interpretation and idea of Messiah that they weren't ready to deal with. So um, you might even say these religious leaders were the enemies of Jesus. Well, they were. They were his enemies, as are we, or were we, before we came to know him, before we surrendered our life to his authority. So, um, 
one of the uh, reflection questions I'd like to pose now is, you know, in our own lives, do we challenge the authority of Jesus? The, the religious leaders, though they were good at following doctrine and law and theology, were not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus. They were not willing to acknowledge who he was as God's son and his messiahship. So in looking at our own lives, are we, do we challenge the authority of Jesus? And even if we're a Christ follower, we can still challenge his authority on a day-to-day -day basis in the things we do and the way we live and the choices and decisions we make. Just, I want to divert just a little bit here, this issue of authority. You know, we talk about the authority of Jesus, and yet this issue of authority in our society is a big issue. Um, it's a strong word. It's filled with meaning. When we hear the word authority, it prompts either awe or respect, or in some cases it may even prompt fear because of its misuse. Um, you know, how about you? When you think of authority, you could probably quickly relate to a situation in your life where there has been an authority or authorities who may have exercised their authority and, and abused their authority, or there may be others who you can reflect back on to see that their authority has been extremely beneficial in your life. Submission to their authority has has helped you grow and mentored you. Um, the word authority denotes power, control, influence. When someone has authority, that means others are accountable to them. They have to answer to them. They are able to determine, to decide things, to render judgments, to wield certain rights and privileges. We say in the home, there is authority, resting with the father and the parents. In the government, there are authorities, the police and those who govern us. In schools, there are authorities. In businesses, on the job, in the church, just about every dimension of life, there are authorities. Today in our society, the idea of submitting to authority is often seen as a negative, to some extent because we have witnessed misuse and abuse of that authority. But primarily our opposition to submitting to authority comes out of an issue of pride in our lives, an inflated sense of self-sufficiency that bristles under all forms of authority other than our own autonomous, self-determining spirit. In short, we want to be our own authority. We want to be our own boss. And the idea of submitting to another, to someone else to tell us what to do, just rubs us the wrong way. We don't like somebody telling us what to do. Uh, this attitude has even produced uh, a crisis within the church. Many churches today we see no longer acknowledging the authority of Jesus in Scripture. The authority of Jesus, the Scripture reveals, often setting it aside to fit their own doctrine or their own policy or their own ideology, whatever they have, current situations which may be at hand. However, throughout the Bible, authority is held out as something good, something that is life-giving. When it is exercised rightly, it is central and crucial to the Christian faith. John Piper says, the freest people of all are those who submit most fully to the authority of Christ. Another point about authority is we have to realize that whatever human authority exists, some of the ones we've just used as an example, ultimately exists and has its authority in God's authority. All human authority is granted and established by God's authority. It's his authority that allows, flawed as they are, 
all of the authorities in our life to even exist. That's sometimes very hard to swallow. But it is very telling. And I'll cite a few Bible verses that deal with this idea that God has placed authorities in our lives over us. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's Romans 13.1. Romans 13.6 says the authorities are God's servants. Titus 3.1 says remind the people to be subject to the authorities. 1 Peter 2.13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to the governors who are sent by him. Ouch. And you have to remember, too, that when Paul was writing this, who, who was the ultimate authority in terms of government in that day? Rome was, wasn't it? And it was an oppressive rule and authority. So when he's writing this to, to believers, or when um, that passage you just read, you know, he's talking to, uh, addressing a context that's very serious, more onerous than even what we are under today, even though we feel like we're being squashed. Um, Daniel 2.21 says he sets up kings and disposes them, or deposes them. The Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Daniel 4.7. Based on God's authority and setting up authorities in this world and putting authorities in our life, there is a connection between the way we respond to authorities in our lives that God has put there and our response to Jesus. If we want a telltale sign in our lives about how we may respond in submission to Jesus, look at our lives in terms of the authorities that have been placed in our lives. How do we respond to others in our lives who have been placed there? Do we realize and acknowledge the fact that they're there because God has placed them there and he wants us to benefit from that? Now, it doesn't mean we do everything they say in a rote manner because we cannot deny following the authority of Jesus, but we need to be honest enough to look at those who have been placed in authority over us, whether it's our boss, whether it's whatever situation we find ourselves, and even within the church, God has set up authorities to help us in our relationship with Christ. And so there is a connection, and, and it, it helped me years ago when I was struggling in my job to realize, and it took me a while, to realize that the way I responded to those in authority over me in my job, my boss, the owner of the business, was indicative of my willingness to respond to the authority of Christ in my life. Was I willing to let him have this situation, acknowledging and acknowledging the authority that he had So, let me ask you a couple of questions. Who are some of the human authorities God has placed in your life? Just reflect on that for a minute. Who are those authorities God that are around you that God has placed in your life? Now, I've mentioned some obvious ones, but there may be others in your life that God has placed there. Whether you acknowledge that at this point, whether it's something that's hard to even come to grips with, just realizing who are some of those authorities that God has placed in your life. When those in authority do speak into your life, how do you view and respond to them? What is your response to those in authority? Is my response or is your response one of humility and submission, or do you challenge it in rebellion? And 
a telling question is, does my response to these authorities reflect my true response to the authority of Jesus in my life? Am I willing to honestly look at the way I respond to authorities as a way of reflecting back on I didn't to go away. <laughs> so, getting back to the religious leader's question, where does Jesus' authority come from? Others, society, religious hierarchy? Jesus is his own authority. And his authority surpasses all other authorities. Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mark 2, 10 says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Luke 4.32 says they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. John 5.27 says he had been given authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. John 10.18 says no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Authority over, his, over death and even his own. John 17, 2 says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those he had been given to him. Jesus is the only one that has authority to give us eternal life, the only source of that eternal life. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in those to come. There are many other scriptures. In fact, I had two or three pages of them, and I had to reduce them in the interest of time. But scriptures are filled with reassurances of Jesus' authority. We can't escape that. That is a reality. Jesus was his own authority because he had all authority, and it had been given to him by the, by the Father, his Father. John 8:28 tells us that. And he never had or needed authorization from anyone or anything outside himself at all. Those Jewish theologians knew the only one who possessed authority in and of himself was God, and that was one of their problems. They could not equate who Jesus was with the fact that they knew that God himself was his only authority. So what is Jesus' response in verse 3? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Jesus once again turns the tables on his, uh, the Inquisition here that's going on by these religious leaders. Um, and a, in true rabbinical fashion, he responds to a question with a question. Um, I'll answer your question if you answer mine first. The question, of course, was regarding John the Baptist. He was a well-known prophet of that day. Um, John the Baptist actually, at that time, was probably, well, he was better known than Jesus himself. John was one of the first prophets who began prophesying after about 400 years of the coming of the Messiah. So after about 400 years of silence, the Jewish people began hearing John the Baptist comes on the scene and begins talking about the immediate presence of the Messiah. No longer do you have to wait for him, he's here. And so Jesus asked the, the, um, the, the leaders, it, who this guy is. And if they answer who he is, what he's doing. Because pointed to Jesus. 
the Messiah. Verse 5, they discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John is a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it's from. How about a politically, politically correct response? We don't want to take a side on this one. <laughs> we want to be in the middle. We want to sit on the fence. We're not really interested in truth. We just want our opinion to be justified. We want us, our presence, who we are, to be validated. And so their response, uh, Jesus' response to them basically is, you know who you're talking to. You know who God is. Why don't you accept what John has to say? If you accept him as a prophet, Messiah. If they answered Jesus' question, they would have to answer their own, they would have an answer to their own question. He's giving them an opportunity to answer. If they answer Jesus' question, their own question is going to be answered. But they don't want truth. So Jesus' response, Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you the answer to your question. If you're not going to respond, if you, don't, you already have the light of scriptures given to you, and you're not willing to respond to the truth that's already been plainly presented to you, then I'm not going to tell you either. You refused to ha handle the truth. So Jesus then follows that conversation with a parable that in a few minutes Joe's going to come and, and walk us through in the parable of the vineyard. But a couple of questions in, as we look at this issue of authority, especially Jesus' authority in our lives. Authority, when time is over and we stand before the throne of God, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, who is going to have the final authority? Only Jesus will. So the question is, am I willing to acknowledge Christ's authority and his claims in my life now? Because our response to his authority in our life right now will determine his response to us at that time. We can't wait until that time to decide who Jesus is. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow and confess him as Lord. Those willingly who have already done so here on earth, and then those who, against their own will, will have to acknowledge who he is. Um, will your response, what will your response be to the authority of Jesus today? The religious leaders could not submit to his authority, so they challenged it. We, there's no middle road here. We either submit to the, Jesus, to the authority of Jesus or we challenge it on a day-to-day -day basis in a moment-to-moment -moment situation. There's no in-between of lukewarm. How our, respons our responses now, again, will, re will determine God's response to us when we stand before him. If we challenge and reject the authority of Jesus now, we'll face his judgment. The consequence of our rejection is eternal separation from God. The Bible refers to this separation from God as a place. It has a name. Eternal torment is real. The name is hell. But if you submit to Jesus' authority now, he will acknowledge you at that time before the Father, and you will enter into his joyous presence to be with him for all eternity. I encourage you and invite you to do that if you have not done that. To submit to Jesus' authority means I have to change how I live, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, what I read, what I look at on the computer, on the television, on the movie screen, what I speak about, how I speak it, how I view my marriage, 
the way I dress and how I view my sexuality among many areas of our lives that we deal with. The real evidence of acknowledging Jesus' authority in our lives will be seen in obedience to his word. Do we do what he asks of us? Are we, like James 1.22, do we hear his word and act on it? Husbands, how do you respond to the authority of Jesus in the sacrificial way you love and cherish your wife? Wives, what is your response to the authority of Jesus in the way you respond and respect your husband? Young people, how do you respond? authority of Jesus in the way you relate to your parents, in the way you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Do you glorify God in your body and among other things to remain sexually pure? Employees, how do you respond to the authority of Jesus in the workplace and on your job? Do you work faithfully and diligently, giving 100%, working wholeheartedly at whatever you do? Is Jesus worthy of our faith, devotion, and obedience? To submit to his authority, the authority of his word, is to make him our first love and highest priority, and the lens through which we see and enjoy all else. True submission to Jesus can be made in a moment, but it is proven over a lifetime. If we genuinely submit to Jesus, to his authority, we will treasure him above all else. Thanks, Ron. So I get to do the fun part and tell you a story. And not really because the story's really harsh and very, it's like I was excited to, to be here and speak. And then as I'm thinking about the parable that I'm going to be talking about, I realize there's not a lot. There's nothing happy, really, about the parable in the way that Jesus is telling it to the people that he's speaking to. And so we'll see. I'm just going to jump right in and read it. You know, I brought a tablet, and then I'm standing in the sun, and I thought I might not be able to read um, from it. So I may read a different translation than I was going to. Here we go. Okay, so he went on to tell the people. So we can see he's still in the same situation, right? He's still talking to the same people. He's still addressing the crowd and specifically talking to the leaders. Um, so he went on to tell the people this parable. So he told them a story. He said a man planted a vineyard, rented it to, to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time... He sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. I'm going to have to switch because I can't see that. Sorry. So, switching translations to the ESV. <laughs> and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. 
but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And I'm going to read verse 19 as well. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so... We know what a parable is. It's a story about, it's, a, it's a, a function that a lot of people use to tell a s fictional story about something that's really, to make a theological point or a point about what's going on in society. But this parable is very interesting because every character and theme has a direct tie to who he's talking to, right? So I'm going to, in like we're reading a play, I'm going to lay out the cast for you right now. So let's look at, who the characters are. We have the planter, and, and also this, or this parable is pretty straightforward. So as you read it, you can kind of follow, you can track with Jesus even as he's saying it, right? So we have the planter or the owner of the, of the vineyard, who is God. We have the vineyard itself, right? The vineyard plays a part, which is the promise of God, right? So we see the vineyard is what is desired in in the story here. And then we have the tenants, right? The, the people that are working the land who are supposed to pay the owner some of the fruit. They represent Israel. Specifically, Jesus is talking to the leaders, but he's talking to all the people at the same time. They represent God's people. And the servants represent, the servants that Jesus sends represent the prophets and the people that have come before Jesus. And the son, the ultimate heir, the one with the authority that Ron talked about earlier, the one who had the authority of the landowner, right? He is Jesus. And so as Jesus is telling the story, it's interesting. He's talking, to, he's telling a history of what's gone on through the whole Bible. He's telling the history of God's people to God's people in a particular point when and he's telling a future aspect of that story to them as well that they aren't putting together. So he's telling a history as we see. We can think of, think of the prophets, right? Think of the story of the minor prophets that you can remember and how great their lives were, right? How amazing it was. Everyone listened to what they said. Um, they obeyed God and they didn't take advantage of their people. No, we know that if you read the book of 
I'm going to, the people doing the home e-group, you guys should talk about the book of Amos when you read this part of the parable. Go back and look at it and say, what did, what was going on in Israel, right, in the book of Amos? What were the people, what were the leaders doing? Like, see who Jesus is comparing these landowners, these leaders now in Israel to. He's comparing them to the people in Israel in history, saying things haven't changed. You guys still don't care about my people. You still don't care about the poor. You still don't care about the needy. You still don't care about um, the, un- the unfortunate, the sick, the widow. P- put anything in there. Put anything in there. And then go read Amos and see how he calls them heifers and cows. And, ch- and you know, they don't like Amos either. Um, and then go back one passage and look at Jesus cleansing the temple, right? And this is the same, the same things going on. So Jesus is tying at the end of his ministry, right? He's bringing together what he, who he is and what's going to happen to him. And he's tying it historically to what's gone on in Israel from the beginning. And he's not separating his ministry from the prophet's ministry. He's got the same message, right? God has always cared about his people, all of his people, not just those who've been able to grab power and misuse it, but he cares about the, um, all of his people uni- universally, right? You can say that. There's a universal aspect to that. Like he cares about all humanity, but there's also uh, you know, his chosen people. He cares about all of them in a specific way. And yet the leaders throughout the history of God's people have taken advantage of those people. And so we see the same thing happening here. And this story highlights the reality of what the Pharisees are after, right? Look at um, what the tenants want. What do the tenants want in the story? Right? They want they want to own the vineyard. They want to use the vineyard how they want. They want everything. And look specifically, when the heir comes, they say, let's kill him. Because maybe then everything will be ours. And it's, there's somewhat, there's a, there's a comedy there in the sense that their killing of the heir accomplishes the purpose of the landowner yet excludes them from the promise that they already had, right? The promise that they had in the coming Messiah. And they were blind to the fact that they're accomplishing the purposes of God, yet because of their rejection of the stone, I'm not going to get into the deep, like I don't have time to nuance that passage, but ultimately the passage, it means your judgment, right? Your judgment on Jesus, your judgment of Jesus led to his death, so you thought you won. But ultimately, his death is what accomplished the purposes and and has also accomplished your rejection, right? They made, they took the promise, promises of God as a means of gain for themselves, personally, and a means to which they could grab a hold of and wrangle and make people submit to them. And you look at the system that they built, right? The Pharisees built, you look at that system and what it was used for was to control the people, to 
basically basically looked to them as their leaders so that they could make the they could make monetary gain and have pretty chill lives in an ancient world without showers and stuff so couldn't be that great but um yeah it's it's a harsh reality that this stone the rejection of the stone is actually crushed is what crushes them but it's also the foundation it's the cornerstone that be, that all of real acceptance into the vineyard real acceptance to get the promise and the vineyard and all the fruit that comes from it that's where it starts in embracing the embracing the the dying son right so to ron's point accepting jesus is authority right because this it's funny how ron said he never answered the question jesus answers the question in the next section right he says where's my authority come from i'm the son in the story the authority comes from my father i'm god right he's saying i have the full authority of the one who sent me but he does it through a story and it's with a harsh message because when because of their rejection of the son they've been cast out of the promise and i think that leaves a gloom over us but when we look back and realize there's pharisees that became believers in jesus right that trusted in jesus so they weren't excluded from trusting in jesus but they at this moment in history they were looking at they were coming to god based on their own inventions and here Jesus is telling them it's not about all these laws that you've put in place cuz God put laws in place right that are good but it's not interpret it's the interpretation and the way that they practice them that Jesus is casting out and he's saying it's not about those things he said what what have i called you to do to love me and to love my people love people in general i'm going to put it that way i'm going to be blunt that blunt about it love people and love God and yet you've turned this into getting what you can and keeping it and being comfortable. And so I just want to clo- I want to apply this to us because we think as this is specifically talking to Israel at this time and Ron even said it earlier we can still live in a way where we don't submit to Jesus' authority. But I want to call I want to be specific about that. Like Jesus is attacking the powerful people in Israel that are trying that are specifically tr- gaining wealth and means and comfort because of their power, right? And if you go read the prophets, that's pretty much the same challenge. And so to us in America where everyone sitting here is more wealthy than these Pharisees, right? And we are, you know, and those of us who are leaders in this congregation, right? We're challenged with the same challenge of Jesus. We're not being condemned like the Pharisees, hopefully. Hopefully we can look at ourselves and say that we're not doing this only for a means of gain, but we have to be honest with like all of us need to be honest with ourselves and look around and say when are we doing this just because we want to be comfortable what in our lives when are we what in our lives are we holding on to 
because it's easy and it's comfortable. And how often do we live our lives just to get the next thing or to, I'm in the middle of remodeling my house. Like, is that, like, honestly, like, do, am I just trying to be comfortable? Am I just trying to have more? Am I just, do I want a bigger house so that I can, what is that, what are, what are the gain there? Like, if we think about that honestly, if I think about that honestly, it's nothing. Um, so what am I going to do with that wealth? What am I going to do with my house? What am I going to do with those around me? How am I going to love them? How am I going to encourage them? And I think we have a lot of things uh, going on in our society right now that we want to blame other people for, right? We want to point to others and say that's our, that's those people in authority, right? But the Bible challenges us to challenge the authorities within the church. We need to be, we need to be the ones living out the gospel, loving others, and submitting to the authorities that, in the way that Ron talked about. And I agree with Ron, that doesn't mean we blindly submit to everything. But we need to be, where we need to be challenging is within our own walls and be um, encouraging one another to continue to persevere and love one another in Christ's name. And so as we think about, my challenge to you would be, as you walk away, go read the prophets. Put the Pharisees in that picture. Put, your, put the Israelites in there. Put the church in there. Put yourself in as the people of God in there and realize what is God's heart for um, this world and then bring it to the parable and bring it to Jesus' time. What is Jesus's, why did Jesus come and lay down his life? And, and, and as you're thinking about those things, um, be open to be challenged with what's important to you, what, are you, what you're living for, in uh, in America, <laughs> and hopefully it's in line with what Jesus has called us to, which is to submit to his authority, to love him, and to spread his message of um, his death and his love for the world, that they might trust in him and believe in him and be saved, and to show that message through our own sacrificial giving and um, life and denying our own denying ourselves basically in the things that we have and the comforts that we want and trusting in him so i just want to invite uh, matt up who's going to lead us in communion and as they come up i'm just going to pray that we would be challenged with the words of jesus um, and not feel hopeless that he cast out not feel hopeless that he did cast out those people. He said, you're going to be replaced. Right? You leaders are going to be replaced with others. But that we would feel hopeful that he did, because of their rejection, he did die and become the one who made it possible for us to be saved and to follow and to live a life that is submitted to his authority and will. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for my brother Ron, who uh, preached your word with the authority that you gave him, Lord. I thank you for just um, giving us hard sayings in your Bible that are not, they're easy to understand in one sense, but we don't like them because they challenge the 
natural tendencies of our heart to just hoard whatever we have and hold on to it because we think that this is all there is so often, Lord. And yet we don't, even in that same breath and thought, we don't think of those around us that don't have. And so I pray that you'd help, you'd give us um, hearts for, for the downtrodden, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the unborn, for the for all those who can't stand up for themselves, Lord, like we see the leaders in Israel should have been doing. Help us see what you really care about and be a church that's about those things. And in that, bringing the truth of who you are and what you're about in the name of Jesus through because you've accomplished the ability to save us through your death on the cross. We might point people to you and that our lives might be changed in such a way that we're living for you in all of those areas, not just highlighting some of them. Although some of us are going to be more involved in things than others, Lord, not just, but coming together and recognizing that all these things um, point to who you are and what you're about. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe and, and Ron, Turner and Hooch. I won't say which is which. Is that you? Praise God for that message. Amen? Amen. You know, a few dates um, stand out like in vivid memory, but there's one that really stands out for me, and it was November 15th, 1997. How many of you guys remember that date? Nobody. That's great. The reason it was important to me is because um, I was a college student who had been courting a young lady for a few years, and uh, I had made an expensive purchase of a ring, and I um, had a plan to take this young lady to Seattle and uh, show her a beautiful scenery of Seattle and um, be able to get down on one knee and propose to the love of my life. And so that happened on the night of November 15th, 1997. And uh, my heart was to, to show her how much I loved her, how much I, I just couldn't live without her. I wanted her more than anything. And so I had gone through all of the sacrifice in order to make that moment possible. And everything within me wanted one answer from her. Do you know what it was? It wasn't a rejection, right? That's that I would have probably I was on a ferry ride looking at Seattle clear sky, which is rare in Seattle, November 15th, 1997. I'll never forget it. The moon was rising over the city and and I was down on one knee making a proposal to my wife. And uh, thank goodness she said yes. Thank goodness she said yes. You realize that what we're looking at this morning, that God, the God of the universe has made a proposal to each and every one of you. He's gone through everything to pay the price. He sent his only son by the blood, the broken body, and the shed blood of his son. The price has been paid. He loves you. He has proposed to you. And the question is, are you willing to say yes? The question is, are you willing to eat the bread and drink the cup? Because in the days of Jesus, 
a man would propose to a wife by doing a few things. Yes, he would pay a bride price that the father would set forth. So he had to be willing to pay the price. But he also, he would leave a cup of wine on the table in front of the bride. And if the bride drank the cup, her answer was yes. If she walked away, it was a rejection. It was a big no. So on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat the bread, you are saying yes. Yes again, Jesus. Maybe yes for the first time, Jesus. Are you willing to say yes to the proposal that Jesus has made? As we take the bread, are you willing to say yes until he comes? We renew the vows. Each and every time that we take the bread and we drink the cup, we're saying yes. Yes, I say yes to you, Jesus. I say yes to the proposal that you made me. We looked at a story where they said no. They rejected him. They killed him. They nailed him to a cross, but that was for our benefit because the price needed to be paid and there was no other price that could be paid except for the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Will you say yes? Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. That night in the same way after the bread, he took the cup and Jesus said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for you. As often as you drink this cup, you do, you'll remember what I did for you. You'll remember the blood that I shed for you. You'll remember the price that was paid for you. And you can say, yes, yes, I accept your proposal. Yes, come into my heart, be my Lord, be my Savior. Yes, I renew my vows to walk with you this week. I renew the vows that I'm looking forward to that day that you come again. Will you say yes? Drink this cup in remembrance of him. Let's worship.